Welcome to First Thought, a podcast by Galway International Arts Festival. I'm your host, Katrina Crow, curator of the First Thought Talks series. This episode was recorded in September 2020 as part of Galway International Arts Festival's Autumn Edition, which took place against the backdrop of COVID-19 and marked a return to Galway's Black Box Theatre for the first time since March. Inevitably, live events look very different this year. For some talks, we were joined by a socially distanced audience. Others went out to online-only audiences. We thank you now for joining us here on the podcast and becoming yet another member of our extended audience. The first Thought Talk series at GIAF's 2020 Autumn Edition were presented in association with NUI Galway. Now, the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed deep fractures in many countries in how we organize our societies, in our capacity to care for our most vulnerable citizens, and in the systems that govern our lives. Some of us hope for change in these systems when we finally escape COVID's clutches. Will the dreadful death toll, the economic devastation, and the obvious deficiencies in our public services encourage or force us to explore other options? How will Ireland react to the potential lessons to be learned from what we've been through, this great word, learnings, has crept into the vocabulary of many of our ministers and politicians um, at the moment. So let's see if they're going to work. Fintan O'Toole, who I have the honour and privilege and delight of uh, interviewing tonight, which is slightly daunting, of course, since he's the smartest man in Ireland, um, is going to talk to us about this. He's been writing for many years about fractured structures and potential change, and just a few more words about him. He is, of course, either the most beloved or the most reviled journalist in Ireland, depending on your standpoint. Largely beloved. He's an internationally respected writer and commentator, a teacher at Princeton University, author of many, many books, including recently, Heroic Failure, Brexit and the Politics of Pain, which um, uh, sold extremely well in the country, which was its subject. Fintan is interested in the broad philosophical questions which underlie the way societies are structured, but also in the details of those structures. So he's as interested in how small farms function here and elsewhere as he is in the true meaning of the word republic, reminding us that that term does not belong exclusively to one political party. He's as interested in the details of our seemingly ever-present housing shortage as he is in the neoliberal philosophy which allows it to persist. Major societal changes have often resulted from huge crises, the most obvious one being World War II and the creation of welfare states in many countries at a time when it seemed obvious to many people that solidarity and equality were values worth supporting. We're now living through another huge crisis which may or may not result in a return to those values. The ongoing pandemic has exposed fractures in our societal systems everywhere. Ireland is not the only country to deal with it. We're going to briefly look at the international situation if we have time. I'm not sure that we will. We'd prefer to focus on, on Ireland. Fintan, you wrote a book in 2010 when Ireland was struggling with the terrible consequences of the financial uh, collapse of 2008 and the government's response to it. The book was Enough is Enough, How to Build a New Republic, and I can recommend it to all of you. Still available in decent bookshops, and it lays out Fintan's blueprint, really, for how to build a proper republic on broadly social democratic principles. In it, you lay out five decencies as principles to transform Irish society for the better. And this is a nod to Nye Bevan's five great evils, which were the genesis of Britain's rapid transformation into a social democracy after World War II. I always forget one of them, so I won't even try. <laughs> I mean, it's always a different one every time, but anyway, um, they don't stay. So your five decencies are security, health, education, equality, and citizenship. I've proposed to you, and you have, being a most congenial person, agreed that this can be the framework for our discussion, that we will just go through these five decencies and also talk about some of the things that didn't get a look in, if you like, in 2010, because they weren't the pressing concerns that they are now. So security, your first decency, encompasses housing and pensions. Two issues still bedeviled 10 years later after you wrote the book by failure to change um, to the great detriment of many Irish people. Are we any better in those areas 10 years on and how can they be improved now? Um, first of all, thanks very much to Galway International Arts Festival for doing this. I think it's a wonderful uh, toe in the water for, for all of us, I think, in terms of thinking we might get back to 
the social contact that we, we, we so deeply value and, and these uh, in-person conversations. And also, what a, what a great pleasure it is to do this with you, Katrina. Um, it's such a wonderful presence in Irish life. Um, so if we take housing and pensions, it's not that things have got better. They've actually got worse. I mean, it, it really, um, when I was writing about that in, in 2010, if we take housing, I mean, the point I was trying to make there was uh, really twofold. One was that housing and the dysfunctional housing system was at the heart of everything. It, it was what created an unsustainable society, so it had huge environmental impacts in terms of you know, people having to live very far away from where they work. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, of course, at the heart of the property uh, I was going to say boom, but bubble, I suppose is a better word, which, of course, then you know, created the banking crisis and, and had terrible consequences for ordinary citizens. Um, but also the other aspect of the housing crisis that was very clear you know, after the collapse was that even when we were building vast numbers of houses, there was still a housing crisis. You know? So it wasn't just about numbers. The argument from the right, I suppose, was saying, look how fantastic we were at building houses. You know, we, we built incredible numbers of houses in those years, but like we built them in Leitrim, or we, we, we built them for 500,000 euro that people couldn't afford. You know, um, where the houses were and who could get access to that housing were, were questions that the market couldn't solve, because the market wasn't interested in those questions. Right? <laughs> it was interested in a house as a commodity and as a, as a tradable asset. Uh, and unless you change that mentality really fundamentally, um, then it was obvious that you, you weren't going to be able to deal with the housing crisis. One of the tragedies for Ireland in the nature of that crisis was that in order to mop it up, the state, of course, had to become the big, had to develop what was the biggest property agency in the world. You know, the, the largest property portfolio ever held by anybody ever in human history was, that was NAMA, you know. Um, and the problem then was that the state had to become, in a way, a property speculator. So how was the state going to get its money back from NAMA? It, it had to ensure that house prices, property prices, inflated again. That was the aim. Instead of saying, actually, you know what? Houses are now affordable. <laughs> you know, a, a, a lot of them are affordable to people, uh, which were not affordable before. They've, they've dropped by 50% in value. This could be a good thing. Th th this could be a way in which we can actually solve a housing crisis, and we can, we can build on that towards the idea that actually housing is not primarily a commodity, but, but primarily a human need. You know, that, that it's fundamental to, to, to being able to lead a decent life. Uh, so, so, of course, what happened then is that we, we reinflated the property market, you know, and, and, uh, but then on top of that have, have the legacy of that long period from 2008, 2009, when just building just stopped and then didn't really begin again um, for, for, for really until about 2013, 2014, and still refusing to see the obvious, you know, which was what was the underlying problem in relation to property in Ireland was, was, was the, the, the decision, and it was a decision, you know, to stop building social housing. Yeah. Um, I, I did a calculation at one point, and it was a very rough one, but there's probably two million people alive in Ireland, or one and a half, two million people alive in Ireland, who grew up in social housing in one form or another. Yeah. And we're not all bad people. No, I'm one of them. Indeed not. You know? we, it, it, it gave us some, a ground underneath our feet. It gave us a possibility of social mobility, you know, because people felt, okay, well, that's okay. We, 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 we either pay the rent, or, you know, it's, but it's, it's, it's manageable. Um, you can think about other things like education, like, like you know, improving your life chances in, in other ways. And we just stopped doing that. I mean, so, so at, at one point, you know, we were, we were building, about a third of all the housing being built in Ireland was social housing. Um, and that, that proportion of, of numbers of houses changes cultural attitudes towards social housing. Completely. There's so much of it yes. that it doesn't become this ghettoized idea that Precisely. we later. So, you, you know, what we ought to be doing, um, you know, so like the, the pandemic has kind of given us this shock, but also kind of an opportunity in a way to think that, that it's not just housing, it's, it's the entire idea of where we live mm -hmm. and who lives where and, and what's the relationship between where you live and where you work, you yeah. know, with, with remote working, with lots of people having realized 
did I really have to spend two hours a day in a car going to work and two hours a day coming home so I don't see my kids? And I'm, I'm probably you know, doing terrible damage to my physical and mental health all the time. You know, is there another way of living? Um, but, but housing is still at, at the absolute heart of that. If we're going to hollow out our cities, uh, which we may do if, if the office uh, trade, of course, that's the big, that's the big driver of property prices. If, if, if that's in, in long-term decline, there's an opportunity to, to, you know, to recolonize our cities for actual ordinary people living in them, which they used to do. It's really interesting if you walk around Galway, you know, just any side street you're on are just ordinary houses. They're not like mansions, you know, they're houses that ordinary working people lived in in the middle of the city. What, you know, what's wrong with that? Um, lots, my, my parents grew up, you know, within a one and a half mile radius of, of, of O'Connell Street, you know. Yeah. Lots of people do this. We need to be doing that again. So, so we do have an opportunity, I think, to rethink housing, um, but, but it, it, it has to be really driven. I mean, just think of the fact that, that, that you can now borrow money for nothing. Mm. The state can borrow money for essentially zero interest. If you build housing that people actually want, mm. it's an asset. Exactly. You know, it, it produces income. States never lose money on social housing. It's, it's one thing you can be absolutely sure of, you know. It's, a, it's an asset that pays itself back. And it doesn't need, the European Investment Bank, for example, and this is five, six years ago, said, they made it really clear that you can treat social housing the same way as you would treat building a bridge or, or, or building a, you know, sewage works. Infrastructure. infrastructure. Yeah. And therefore, it shouldn't count as part of your national debt because it's, 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 it's an investment, it's a capital investment. Right? So the only reason we haven't done this is ideological. You know, we, we've had people in government who just don't believe in it. Um, and part of, I think you, what you were saying this, you know, is a very important point about how people see social housing. So they stigmatize social yes. housing. If you're a Leo Varadkar, you see social housing as a place where poor people live, people who are on social welfare. And we don't want a lot of that because it's a sort of shame to have it. Um, and so the official policy now for 10, 15 years has been mixed development. Uh, so a mix of social housing and private housing, which is all very well, but what it means is that unless a private developer is interested in, in the land, uh, then there will be no social housing developed. I, I live very quite close to Ballymun in Dublin. If you just go out towards I Ikea and that whole area, there's a vast amount of perfectly good service land on there bus is, routes. There is, yeah. It has uh, access, it has sewage, it has everything, <laughs> you know. Why won't they build on it? Because Dublin City Council says, no, no, but that has to, it has to be a private developer who does that. Yeah. And this is within sight of, of, of you know, a, a big hotel which is full of homeless people, you know. Literally, you can look out your window from that hotel and you can see, I could have a house there. <laughs> it is, I mean, I, I, I went out to Swords, I think, two years ago to give a lecture on the yeah. bus, because I don't drive. And on either side of me, all the way out, was wonderful land, fully serviced, owned by the state, yeah. and nothing happening. Yeah. And it has to be ideology, like yeah. there can't be any other explanation yeah. for not doing the obvious thing. Yeah. And what we need to do is, we, we, we have in Ireland astonishing flowering of architecture. Yeah. Some of the best architects in the world, currently practicing in the world, are, are in Ireland. I mean, the Pritzker Prize, which is the equivalent of the Nobel Prize yeah. for architecture this year, I mean, went to, you know, two Irish female architects. Yes. You know? um, and they're dying to do this. It's not like, you know, they would love to do, you know, let's get the best minds of planners and architects and make the most beautiful social housing in Europe, you know, so let's, why, why, why can't we do that? There's absolutely no reason we can't do it. It's, it's a lack of will. It's not a lack of money because the, the money is, is almost immediately available at zero interest. You know? yeah. And if you could solve that, right, then, then you begin to solve everything else because what, social housing is really good for people who live in social housing. It's also very good for people who want to buy their own house. Yes. Because if you've got a lot of social housing, it brings down the price of, 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 of new private housing, right? Because the competition is... How much do you think uh, our citizens' desire to keep the inflated prices of their current dwellings plays into this? Well, of because course it, it is does. there. There's no uh, doubt about it. Yes, it does. No, and it's very real. And, and, and it, to be fair, it's not just about greed, of course. It's if, if you've... If you've bought a house at a certain price, you're trapped into this sense that this house better be worth 
yeah. you know, the 475,000 I paid for it, you know, the idea of negative equity, um, which, which in fact for many people is, is really only sort of theoretical in a way. I mean, unless you're actually planning to sell the house, yeah. it doesn't really matter that much. Um, and so long as you can afford to pay the mortgage, it's, it's not a big issue. But at some point you have to break that. You, you, you do have to say, look, the state's not you know, deliberately going to try to drive down the price of your house, but the state has to have long-term policies that mean um, that, that vast amounts of people's income is not being taken up. And in a way that the generation that, that, that had windfall profits, yeah. which is my generation, from increase in house prices, people who bought their, their homes, say, in the 80s and 90s, that, that shot up in price to ridiculous levels compared to what we paid for them, that, that generation now has children who have grown up and are seeking to buy houses of their own. Yeah. So I think they can understand that this is not going to cut it. People are now starting to rely on inheritance yeah. as a way to, to, to house themselves when their parents die, which That's is right. not satisfactory. Right. Yeah. You know, young people are living at home for much longer than they should uh, and finding it very difficult to rent or to buy anywhere. You know, and, and it inflates everything then, doesn't it? Because, you know, in order to live, just to pay rent in Galway or in Dublin or in Cork, you know, um, you have to earn what by European standards would be actually qu quite a substantial amount of money. Yes. Um, you know, because 50, 60, 70 percent of your income is, is sometimes going, going on rent. So it has a huge impact on, on the, you know, the, everything about people's lives. Um, and it, it contributes to this deep insecurity, which is, I suppose, where we started, right? So one of the things I was trying to argue in that book is that actually, you know what, people are actually quite conservative in a good way, right? The, the, people are risk averse. They, don't, they, they want to feel, okay, I've got the ground under my feet. And then they're willing to take some risks, right? So we, we keep telling, particularly younger people, we keep telling them, you'll never have, you know, a single job. You're going to have to have three or four different careers. You're going to have to be, you know, very smart and move and shift and do all this sort of stuff. And that's all very well. Um, but there's a quid pro quo that society owes to people if you're saying your job is not going to be very secure. It's to say, well, actually, you know what? If you're between jobs or if you have to retrain or if you have to go back to, to third level education for a while, if you're not paying, you know, 2,000 euro a month for a pretty crappy flat, then maybe that's okay, you know, if, you're pay, if, you're, if, if you have some sort of basic security. And then for so that goes back to your theme of yeah. security. I yeah. mean, the, the other issue is, is, is job security, which of course is yeah. rapidly becoming a thing of the past. Yeah, yeah. you know, and, and you know, I'm not saying we have a magic wand that we, can, that we can suddenly go back to an economy where, you know, and maybe in some ways we don't want to, you know, like there's some good things about the idea that, um, you know, you, you finish your education at, 17, 18, or 20, or 25, or whatever, and then you go into a job, and that's your job for the rest of your life. You know, so it's it's good for people to be able to uh, to, to do that. But the, the problem with a lot of these changes, and I think this is to do with the pandemic as well, is that every change we've seen, and we, you know, we're both in our 60s, so we've lived through centuries of change. We you know, have. I mean, extraordinary. Even since you know, we're talking about the. The crash in 2008, you know, or the book, that book in 2010 or whatever, you know, even since then there are unimaginable changes in terms of the technology, for example. And the problem is not the change or our ability to adapt to the change. The problem is who benefits. You know? The problem is who, who gets the extra um, advantage that's created. And, and what, how we've structured the world is that a very, very tiny number of people get a vast proportion of that. And I think this is one of the things we're going to have to think about in terms of security, right? Which is, uh, let's 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 say we we do get the advantage now of people being able to work from home, um, and maybe being able to connect much more to their own communities rather than being dormer towns. Maybe not having to commute. There's an awful lot to be said for for, for this, but only if that advantage is going to the person. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's the multinational corporation which says, actually, we don't need this yeah. massive office block that's costing us... No more heating bills. bills. No more heating bills. No, yeah. more, no more rent. You know, uh, isn't, this, isn't this fantastic? And, by the way, I can also phone you at midnight, you know, or send you emails, and I expect you to be able to, to apply because the, the, the barrier between work and, and, and personal life is, has, is has been... blurring all the time. You know? yeah. uh, so, in order to, for the benefits to go to ordinary people, the state needs to be very active about this. The French government, for example, has brought in a law, you know, which says um, it is illegal for your employer to contact you, you know, when, when you're outside working hours. Yeah. 
If you're working, you're working. If you're not working, you're not working. And, you know, and, and this, this is, really needs to be enforced. You, know, you really need to be able to say, and of course, you may voluntarily sometimes wish to do something, or there might be a reason for you to do it, but, but you must have the right to say, to say no. This is, this is, I'm sorry, this is, not, this is my time with my kids. This is my time with, to go to the theater. This is my time to, to, to you know. Nine to five is rapidly becoming a very outdated concept. And unfortunately, people accept these things. And I suppose in another way, that one of the old-fashioned ideas that we had about work and how it was organized was the fact that once upon a time we had trade unions, yeah. which flourish in, in inhabited spaces where people are yeah. together and can yeah. talk to each other and have meetings and do all that stuff. Maybe that's possible again, but unions have really lost a huge amount of their power since yeah. I was young. Yeah. Uh, you don't see it anymore. But they were a sort of guarantee of security for people too, because they fought for their rights and protected their, their jobs if they were under threat. You know, if you talk to, well, I'm generalizing, but if you talk to a lot of people in their 20s and 30s, the idea of unions just seems like, what? Yeah. You know, what they is don't that? Know what they are. And if they have any views on it at all, it's quite hostile, you know. Yeah. And there were a lot wrong with trade unions in the way that they evolved. I mean, they were often highly male, highly sexist. Um, they were often yeah. exclusionary. They were often run for the benefit of their officials. There's all sorts of stuff. But everybody, and you don't need to look at socialists or social democratic sources. I mean, look at, look at World Bank reports, for example. I mean, the, the World Bank, you know, economists will say, the biggest reason for the growth in inequality is the decline of trade unions. You know, you, you can map absolutely directly the weakening of collective bargaining on the, for, for labor with an increased proportion of new wealth going to people who have capital. So in that sort of perennial struggle between capital and labor, um, capital did a very good trick, which was to convince people actually that their biggest weapon, which is collective bargaining, it's just, there's no great mystery about it. Weak people get strong if they work together collectively. Um, and so what forms of, of collective bargaining can we do in a more decentered economy? That's a, that's a really It's a very big issue. Question. I mean, they're, 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 they're starting to be green shoots in, in yeah. firms like Uber, yeah. where, where you've got a very dispersed workforce yeah. who are coming together now in yeah. the United States anyway to Absolutely. try and deal yeah. with, with the fact that they're being exploited yeah. to the hilt by, the, by their employer. But it's, you know, it was Fascinating to me to hear you say the, the other night, uh, Finton was talking with John Lanchester about the state of the United Kingdom, and the, the, the moderator asked you, how did you think things would go? And you said, in a way, this talk is kind of predicated, I suppose, on this hope, that you believed that in time social democracy will reassert itself, that that, that huge ideological shift can happen, and that people will return to values like equality and solidarity. Yeah. And of course, that goes to the heart of all of these things that you're talking about. In terms of the, the, the housing issue, though, we're going to move on in a minute to health, which is one of the big things that, that you have to talk about. They have, the government has established the Land Development Agency under the stewardship of John Moran, who's a former yeah. Secretary General of the Department of Finance. He was down here last year telling us what he wants to do, and he was interested in, he's going to have a huge remit on housing. And he's interested in, in long-term rental models like they have on the continent, all yeah. that kind of stuff. It was a very interesting presentation, but we haven't heard that much since. And I just wonder, instead of a land development agency, should we have had a national building agency uh, that would uh, set absolutely. about dealing with all that service land and putting houses on it? Yeah, uh, I mean, the, the land development agency is a great thing and it's really important. Yeah. And land is, of course, a huge, you know, you can't separate them. Yeah. Um, but, but absolutely, we need a national building agency. I mean, yeah. look, for God's sake, um, the house that I moved into, that I grew up in, you know, was, was uh, finished in 1948. Yeah. In 1948, I was looking up, you know, what were Ireland's main exports and imports in 1948? The reason, in, by the way, that he's looking at these interesting pieces of information is that Finton is writing a memoir of his life and what was going on in Ireland at the time. Tell us the title. Well, I'm calling it a personal history rather than a memoir because my life is right. far too boring to, to be able to do <laughs> a memoir. And then I sat down and I wrote something else. <laughs> but, We're hoping for uh, a scandal and gossip now. You better it's a, it's a, I was born in 1958, which, of course, is the year when T.K. Whitaker, Lamas, the whole revolution, opening up the country and all that sort of stuff. So the book is going to be called We Don't Know Ourselves, <laughs> which is a double. And anyway, but I, uh, when I, when I, the house that I was, uh, grew up in the, by my parents, uh, while my mother moved into it in, in, in 48, that year, if you look at 
leading Irish exports and leading Irish imports. There's a really interesting thing, which is racehorses appears in the top five of both. Yeah. And why? In and out. It's, it's Irish horses going to races in England <laughs> are counted as an export, and they're in the top five exports, because we've so few exports. And then they're counted coming back in the top five imports. You know? <laughs> so th this was a really, really poor country. Yeah. And it could build social housing on a massive scale. I know. Yeah. Why? Because the state got really involved in it. It was one of the things Fianna Fáil did. It, it was the basis of Fianna Fáil's hegemony in Irish cities, you know, was, was building social housing. Uh, and it wasn't perfect, and there was a lot, lot of mistakes made, but it transformed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people, you know. Uh, and and it was, if it was doable in post-war Ireland, I remember a lot, that must have started in the 1930s, during the Great Depression. Ireland built more social housing in the 1930s than other, any other country in Europe. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. incredible. Astonishing record. achievements, you know. So that's all uh, there. We forget that, 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 that these yeah. huge social programs were actually available. Yeah. But as you say, why not now? Yeah. When we actually are a very rich country by any... Uh, absolutely. And, you know, it, it goes back to will. It goes back to, you know, you were saying about well, the conversation with John Lanchester and uh, I was talking about maybe we might see a return to the social democratic moments. And I'm going to be very optimistic and say I, I think we will. Because I think the parallel is very interesting in one way. You know, the greatest period of progress for ordinary people, I mean, not measured in terms of corporations or anything else, measured in terms of the lives of ordinary people, is that 30 years after the Second World War in the West, you know, mm -hmm. uh, broadly speaking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's a social democratic consensus, right? Of, you know, it varies from you know, country to country, but broadly speaking, it's a, it's a consensus around social democracy. The European Union comes out of it in many ways, all that. You know. what, what, what drove it? And I was thinking about this, you know, because the, the optimistic thing to say is, well, it was driven by hope. Mm. No, actually, mostly it was driven by fear. Mm. And this is, I'm saying this because this is the parallel to where we are now, you know, that actually what really drove that moment was we'd been through the 30s, we'd been through the Holocaust, we'd been through the Second World War. There was the fear of communism, of course, as well. The West in general, the culture was terrified of going back there and was saying, you know what, democracy won't survive if the vast majority of people don't have security. Yeah. If the people are afraid, they'll go to fascism or they'll go to communism and democracy will not survive. And the thought therefore was, how do you stabilize a democracy? You stabilize a democracy by making sure that there's a minimum level of security that people have. And this is not then just about missiles and all that sort of stuff, although sadly a lot of it was, but it's also critically about having a house. Housing, health, education. Uh, you know, not being terrified that when you, when, you, when you have to retire at 65, you're going to starve. You know, pensions, we won't be going to pensions, but you know, that was a huge issue for people, that if you get sick, you know, that you, you, you have access to healthcare. So this is the parallel with the pandemic, I, I suppose. We're, we're living in a time of fear. And fear can be uh, toxic and paralyzing, and it can be manipulated and is manipulated by, by a lot of the, the evil lachicos we have in, 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 in power around the world right now. But, but there, is a, there is a good kind of fear, right, which is to say, book up. Yeah. You know, we better bloody well get our act together here, because taking it for granted that democracy can survive um, it, it, it means that you let it lapse. You let rich people get too rich. You let the, 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 the structures of the economy just continue to suck money up towards the top and leave vast numbers of people feeling very afraid, very insecure, very worried about, about the future, and therefore very prone to... Very prone to looking for strong men. Looking for to strong men who are going to come them, And looking for enemies as well who can explain yeah. who's, you know, it's really the Jews or it's really whoever, yeah. it doesn't matter who it is. Immigrants. You know. yeah. uh, so... What, what, what's happened to us with the pandemic is we've been reawakened to danger. And, uh, my, and then where the hope comes in from the fear is that I think that that reawakening to danger can be turned to very good use, okay. right? which is to say, uh, and of course this, this is in the context then of climate change you know, and, and of this much bigger emergency. We're, we're in survival mode as a species. You know? Um, and, and thinking now about, just look at the changes we've, we've, we've adapted to over the last six months. You know, if somebody had told us last year that this was going to be the Galway International Arts Festival in September, and 
you know, they would have thought this was a, an art installation itself, you know, some artist that had this idea of having, you know, all of you sitting there like that with, with your faces covered and, you know, is this some kind of comment on Muslims or, well, you know, is it, is it you know, a, a, an ironic commentary on the way in which right-wing politicians are always abusing Muslim women for covering their faces or, well, you know, we would have interpreted it in all sorts of ways. They're all feeling very objectified now listening to this. Yeah, but you know it's what I mean? So, but this is, we, we've, we've adapted we to yeah. very radical changes collectively. Um, not pleasantly, not for good reasons, for horrible, horrible, deathly reasons. But, but we've, we've shown ourselves that actually, as a, you know, as a species, we're really very good at doing things we never thought we would do. Um, and, uh, you know, Samuel Beckett had that, is that great line in one of the plays about habit is a great deadener. Yeah. You know, and habit does deaden us. You know, we, we, we get into habits. And in, in a way, the, the completely unjust distribution of power and privilege and, and is, a habit. is a habit, which has been formed. Interesting way to look at it. And it's a habit that needs to be broken. And it, it, the pandemic is not a good way to break it. I'm not, I'm not exulting in it. You know, it's, it's, it's horrific. But something had to break the habit. Yeah. You know, the, 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 we just have to start looking at not tolerating the intolerable. And, and recognizing that we're actually perfectly capable of adapting to change. And we know we are. Yeah. Um, now, I'm going to break the glass wall for a moment. Sinead, I forgot to bring my phone up on the stage with me, so could you stand somewhere and at 10 minutes before the end of this, make a sign to me so we can go to questions. Sorry about this. I'm obviously, you know, losing my mind. Um, pensions is a huge issue. And we could spend a lot of time talking about it, and we have in the past yeah. done really interesting uh, uh, sessions on that and, and at other venues. Um, it's not solved. Uh, it's, uh, I suppose part of the problem is people find pensions unless they really need to think about them, an unthinkable subject. It's, yeah. something, it's, it's a sort of, uh, here's mortality approaching if I'm yeah. talking about a pension. And young people don't want to know, and we've, we've had wonderful people like Teresa Gerarducci, who wrote a marvellous book called When I'm 64, after the Beatles song, where she lays out a sort of a plan for a decent pension for every citizen in the United States. Finton shares that, that idea, that were we to, to actually nudge everybody into or ask everybody, or tell everybody, to enroll in a, in a state pension scheme. Take away all the supports there are for private pension schemes. We could end up with a reasonable, modest sum of money for every citizen uh, after the age of 65. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? Just very briefly, because in the pandemic yeah. context, I think we could sort of broaden this in a way, because so I've, I've always believed, and most people who study pensions will tell you that the, the overwhelming positive effect of pensions in Ireland is the old age pension. That's you know, right. the, private pensions in terms of doing the job which pensions were supposed to do, which is keep people out of poverty in their old age, are actually not that relevant. You know? um, they're very relevant to a huge pensions industry which performs abysmally with your money. Uh, you know, the, the, even during the boom, they couldn't produce 2% a year annual return for people. Um, and they're quite ready to charge you 7% in terms of charges. And they charge vast. So they, and the only thing that makes it worthwhile for people to put the money into their private pensions is the tax relief. Mm. So even though you're getting a poor return on it, the state effectively makes it up by, by letting you away with, with the tax you would have paid. If you just took all that existing money, so it's not about new money, right? If you took all that existing money and said, actually, just pay people a good pension. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it would have a, a real good effect on social justice and, again, on security. Right? People thinking, it doesn't matter whether I was a woman who had to, you know, leave my job yeah. uh, and therefore had not been able to accumulate even sort of basic entitlements to pensions. It doesn't matter. It's, it's an entitlement to everybody. But the reason I might extend this very slightly is to say, and I know you're going to kill me because I, I, I keep quoting Bernard Shaw and I wrote a book with Bernard Shaw and I have these things in my head. I he, love Bernard he was very Shaw smart. just as much as you do. But when the old age pension was brought in in Britain, mm. um, Shaw, who was a very interesting socialist thinker actually, you know, said, yeah, the old age pension is absolutely fantastic. Um, why don't we have a pension for everybody all the time? Yeah. And we now call it universal basic income, yeah, right? Exactly. It was an idea of like, so, I mean, if, if we say that it's right for someone who is 65, not to be able to fall into poverty, because that would be beneath human dignity. Why does that not apply to somebody who's 25? <laughs> um, why can we not have a sort of ba basic income that, that is taken for granted as a right? And then you can, you, know, you can build on top of that. And 
so this is what, where I think we, what's happening with the pandemic is that we've suddenly discovered that you can more or less abolish the distinction between working people and non-working people, right? So the state is, is subsidizing the income of huge numbers of people with the very good idea and the very proper idea that don't let them lose the sense that they're workers. Don't let them lose the sense that they're contributors to the society. Stop this thing of having the unemployed over there and the employed here, you know, and those unemployed people are parasites on, on us who are, who are working. Um, that was always socially destructive, uh, always counterproductive, you know, because you get people who are then become completely dis discouraged and start thinking of themselves as not being able to, uh, to, 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 to be productive in the society. Um, so, so maybe the solution to the pension crisis lies in a broadening of the idea of, of, a, pension, oh, yeah, of, 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 of a basic, basic income, income. Yeah. Um, because that's effectively what the state's doing right now, you know, and, and it's going to be quite hard to reverse that. Yeah, I mean, if when you look at the money they're pouring into HAP payments for to support yeah. outrageous rents where yeah. people really are being asked to pay ridiculous sums of money, it is, it makes sense that if, if, if you were to look, and it's a thing you can do, like, that is look at all the money that is being spent on uh, supports for people and look at how, how you would use that in a different way. Yeah, um, you know, so it's, it's not necessarily about having to, having to put new money into, in, into a lot of this no. stuff. It's actually having more efficient systems yeah. um, that are, you see, it's, it's the thing all the time that social justice is always treated as an airy-fairy, wouldn't it be nice, but ah, it's not really practical. Where is the experience of human history over and over again is that the most just solution is also the most yeah. efficient. Yeah. Because you have to think it out in terms of you know, the greatest benefit for the greatest number. And, and you have to really think, okay, well, how does that work? And, and why are we wasting, I mean, we're getting towards three billion a year in, in, in payments to private landlords to, yeah. to, because the, you know, other people can't, can't, can't afford the rent and we don't want to have them on the street. If you, if you spent the three billion on social housing, yeah. you know, the state would have an asset. Yeah. <laughs> it would actually it be would making money in a sense, would be getting rent, lives, yeah. uh, and would vastly improve people's lives. Yeah, and just it's just this sense of possibility again, though. You know, uh, I mean, I know it's, it's beginning to leech back, but the homelessness crisis could be solved mm. in a week mm. when, yeah. when we needed to. You know, we could just get people off the streets, get them into a building, requisition hotel, get people housed. And every, everybody who's thought about, about homelessness, you know, it's started in the States, but in the city and states, you know, housing first. You're not going to deal with somebody who has an addiction. You're not going to deal with somebody who's on heroin, who's an alcoholic, or, you know, has all those kind of problems, if they're on the streets. And all the evidence suggests that when people are housed who have severe addiction or mental health problems, they exponentially improve. Because then they because they're operating from a base and they're regarded security as and stability. decent so, human beings, all of yeah, that. So. Let's move on to health, which is obviously one of the, the major issues on people's minds at the moment. And we've come through a very interesting experiment, if you like, during the pandemic in terms of how the state handled it. Yeah. Would you like to address that? Well, I suppose there's, maybe there's one long-term thing, I suppose, just worth reminding ourselves of, which is one of the things the pandemic has done, and again, it's, it's, it shouldn't bloody well take a, a, a horrific pandemic to do this, but it's reminded us that we've been in a bubble. Um, pandemics, plagues, infectious diseases have been a constant in human history. Mm. And again, you and I are old enough to remember going to school with kids who were wearing calipers because of the polio oh, epidemic yeah. in the 1950s, or, um, I certainly remember mobile chest X-ray vans in in O'Connell Street in Dublin, you know, because of tuberculosis. Or, you know, so the the idea of of the risk of infectious diseases was was there, uh, and it's absolutely horrific. But also one of the great drivers of human progress. Yes. So, how did we get clean water? We didn't get clean water because rich people decided. Wouldn't it be really nice if poor people had clean water? We got clean water because of cholera, you know, yeah. and typhus. And rich people saying, I really wish, you know, these diseases would just stop with the poor people, but unfortunately they don't. They might kill me too, or my child, um, if the water is contaminated with cholera. So we have to build, you know, systems to get clean water for everybody. Um, public health mm. it, it was the great driver of what historians call in the 19th century municipal socialism, mm. you know, sewage, clean water. Um, and then you have to start having health clinics, you know, because how are you going to deal with outbreaks if you don't have them? And then if you have health clinics, you have to start getting the basis for a national health service, which begins to come along. 
so a huge amount of progress has come from the growing human knowledge of how diseases are transmitted, and then realizing health is a social thing, it's not individual. You know. Think about the last 20 years, what have you heard about health? It's about your health. It's about your diet, your exercise, um, you know, your responsibility to go to the gym, all of which is perfectly true, by the way. I'm not, I'm not you know, cancer is not a communicable disease. Heart disease is not communicable in the same sense that this pandemic is. Um, but we, we, we privatized the, the, the narrative about health. Right? It's, it's up to you. And what the pandemic says is, well, actually, you know, you can be the, you can be the most responsible, healthiest person in the world, and uh, if you're 70 and you get this thing because somebody else coughs on you, you know, you, you may die from it. The, the public idea of health as a shared thing has actually been a great driver of progress, and I think it could be again. Just look at what we could do again, right? So as, as soon as the pandemic hit, the government could say, no such thing as public hospitals, private hospitals. <laughs> uh, we are requisitioning basically the entire system. Now paying for it, which I think is, is 150 million vast amounts of money. But nevertheless, we, we had a period in which it was said, well, look, you know, let's prioritize here. If you prioritize public health, you can't have an apartheid system. And now we're slipping back to the apartheid system, but I, I don't think this is going to be feasible. And the reason is very simple. The pandemic is not just a health crisis because of itself, it's a, it's a health crisis because of the displacement of health services. So um, I'm sure many people in the audience, many people watching have had this experience themselves, you know, where you were supposed to go to a clinic or you're supposed to have a checkup or you were supposed to have a diagnostic test. And somebody, you get a letter saying it's been postponed until September 2021 or 2022. Yeah. You know, the, the system, that, that crisis is, is the one that's coming, right? So, so even if you begin to deal with the pandemic, you have a vast buildup of, 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 of healthcare needs in the population, which can no longer be dealt, so you can't buy your way out of it anymore, right? So you can't just say, well, oh, I've got PHI, can I skip the queue, can I get my colonoscopy or whatever, right? Um, so, so this is coming. And I, I think it's, it's going to force us to have the conversation we should have been having all along, you know, which is on the absolute moral degradation of a two-tier health system. You know, you, you, a two-tier health system is a very straightforward way of saying, I am more important than you, my life matters more than your life, my quality of life matters more than your quality of life. And it is an apartheid system. I mean, if we were doing this on the basis of color, you know, that's what people would call it. We do it on the basis of income, effectively, because it translates into whether you can afford to have health insurance or not. Um, and again, it's not just that the system is unjust. It is completely off-the-wall, bonkers, inefficient, right? Why? Because it, 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 it has what economists call perverse incentives, right? It incentivizes the people who provide the services to do it in the most inefficient way possible. So. Um, for-profit medicine, for example, we know is much, much more expensive than not-for-profit medicine. Why? Because if you're running um, uh, a hospital for profit you, and I come in with a, 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 a problem on my toe, you're going to do 75 different tests um, because you're earning money and the insurance company is going to pay for, you know, all of the tests, right? Uh, and, and we know this, and it's fraudulent. There's a fraud at, at the heart of a lot of for-profit medicine. But also, any system is only as good as the information that can be extracted from it. So to, to run any system, somebody has to know what's going on. And the Irish system is so fragmented between public and private. You have different categories of patients. But also remember, uniquely, I think there's nowhere else in the world says this, it's not just that you have private patients and public patients, it's that you have huge numbers of people who are both. Yeah. Huge numbers of people, I'm one of them, and I, I feel guilty about it. I have pri private health insurance and the BHI, I'm sure you, know, you are, a lot of people are. But we're also, theoretically, fully entitled to public health care. Right? <laughs> you know? And so, how are we categorized? Uh, the, like, there's a really simple thing in, in, in um, the Irish system is, is one in which the, um, the, the, the patient has to follow the money. The patient has to go to where the resources are. In an efficient system, the money will follow the patient. If you're a, a public hospital in Ireland, you get penalized for treating too many people because you're, you're exceeding your budget, right? This is a perverse incentive. It's completely insane. 
whereas the people who are efficiently treating as many people as they possibly can should be the ones to, to whom the money is going. Every, you know, if there's a fixed amount of money, and remember, we are now, we now spend one of the highest uh, proportions of our GDP on healthcare of any society in the world. We're not quite at American levels, but we're getting there. We're getting there yeah. And again, this is not about new money. So if you put together all the private spending and all the public spending that we have on healthcare in Ireland, we, we have, you know, we have the money to have a really, really good healthcare system that can, can deliver for everybody equally. And it's a political decision not to do that. And I know there are systems, there's this launch of care, but it's incredibly slow. It is. I mean, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you, Fintan. Do you, the slaunch of care plan, is that sufficient in your view? I, I mean, it will take forever at, yeah. at the current rate, of, but maybe that might be one of the, the things that perversely comes out of the pandemic, that people will say, right, enough is enough. Yeah. Uh, can we please implement slaunch care? The plan is there. It would certainly be better than what we have now. Oh, and look, slaunch care is a lot of really very good things in, in slaunch yeah. care, but, but look, let's just take the simplest thing about it, right? So. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've been hearing about this for 20 years, right? So everybody knows the first thing to do to get an efficient, just health care service is to have, you know, everybody has access to a local yeah. medical centre, you know, which is not just your GP, but has, has a nurse, has a chiropodist, has, you know, has uh, a, a range of services to which people have access. Why is that a good thing? Well, it's a good thing because it's what people want. Nobody actually wants to be going into hospital. Uh, it, it gives people access much, much, more, much more quickly. It keeps them in their community, particularly older people. But also, it means that people are treated at the appropriate level first. Our problem is, it's like, you know, with the nuclear button, you escalate into incredibly high-tech, incredibly expensive hospitals very, very quickly. Yeah. Systems that work, you know, and most stuff can be dealt with at a local level. Now, on the current, I, I should have looked this up, but I think on the current rate of of building these community healthcare centres, we will have fulfilled Slauncher Care by 2080. Yeah, something like that. You know, it's just ridiculous. It's 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 again. There's just no real drive, real energy, real central planning about you know wh wh why uh, we, this has to be done within a time frame. You know. Um, we, we're exporting most of, of the doctors that we, that we, we train. And a very large and, number of our nurses. And a huge we number of our nurses who are fantastic. medical personnel for export. And they're, they're being trained up to some of the highest standards yeah. in the world. They can go anywhere in the world. Uh, particularly our nurses are absolutely brilliant. We've seen this during the pandemic, how yeah. fantastic these people are, how public spirited they are, how much they want to contribute to our community. And then we tell them, oh, yeah, okay, piss off. I mean, we, do you remember we put out a call to, to young nurses and, and they're saying, yes, will you, will come, you come home and help? And they came home and, you know, the, the immediate crisis in the, in the hospitals passed. They said, you can go home now. I know. There's no job for you. No, it's I really... Mean, this, is, this is insane stuff. And it's, it's, it's inefficient, it's wasteful, but it's also deeply unjust. Because it hits at the basic dignity that people should have of being able to get appropriate health care when they need it. I, I think Beckett, uh, that, that quote from Beckett about habit as a deadener is probably very opposite for nearly yeah. everything we're talking about. Yeah. There, there are deeply ingrained, very, very bad habits running like yeah. a virus right through our entire healthcare system. Absolutely. And, you know, if you, if, even if you talk to a consultant who has private patients as well as public ones and, and ask, and I, as I have uh, yeah. one, what, what would be wrong with just becoming a, a public consultant? You get paid a lot of money, 240 grand a year. Is that not enough for you? You know, why do you need to have private patients? We got used to it. Yeah. Now, getting used to things is grand, except when it, it, is, it becomes grotesque, as it does in this. We are going to run out of time, because I have not been in any way a good steward of you, and have allowed you to talk at length about two fascinating subjects, of course. Um, we'll have to do part two next year, where Absolutely. we'll talk about education and equality. The equality chapter in this book is wonderful. It's your spirit level chapter where you've said a lot of it now in fact already to us yes. this evening and the last issue is citizenship and before we go to questions I think it'd be good to have you talk about your concept of citizenship as a basis for a fair society yeah you know I think we need to rediscover republicanism you know isn't it terrible that republicanism in Ireland has been uh, well if you if you googled it or did a content search on the Irish Times or anywhere else it's either you know the, crazed, conspiratorial, militarists um, who think killing people is republicanism, uh, or it's, it's Donald Trump. <laughs> republicanism is a great concept, you know, because it's, 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 it's really deeply rooted in human history. 
Um, and it, it's, it's, its basis, oddly enough, as it happens, and I've quoted a lot, but I mean, the great thinker on republicanism, um, you know, recognized around the world is a Galway man, uh, Philip Pettit, um, from Ballygar. Uh, and his, his book, Republicanism, you know, I think is a, is a really key text. But Philip says in that book that, he says, well, what is a republic? You know, he, he studies it you know, way, way back into the Greeks and all, you know, all that, but, but he brings it to an essence, right, which is non-domination. It's, 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 the, it's the right not to be subject to the arbitrary will of anybody else. Right or any group of people, whether that's the Catholic Church in Ireland, or it's oligarchs, or it's media owners, or it's, you know, that, or women being dominated by men, or, you know, the, 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 that, that the, the classical thinkers understood this immediately. Why? Because they lived in slave societies. Yeah. So they said a republic is the opposite of being a slave, basically, because they, they knew what a slave was. A slave was subject to somebody else's arbitrary will. You might have the nicest master in the world. You know, your master might be really, really lovely. The fact is they could do anything they wanted to you. Yeah. And the very fact that they could means that they're outside the republic. So to be inside the republic is you are not subject to anybody else's arbitrary will. And that's citizenship, you know, that's the... And look at the pandemic, you know, like, isn't it extraordinary? The success we have had in the pandemic, insofar as we've had success, is us. You know, and I'm, I'm not for a minute taking away from our wonderful um, healthcare workers or from NFET or from experts or you know, people who've done incredible work and are still kind of killing themselves doing it. But the basic um, success of this is to do with citizens, you know, b behaving as good citizens towards each other. And, and Philip uses this phrase, you know, where he says that a, a republic is a place in which we can look one another in the eye without reason for fear or deference. Wow. And I think it's a fantastic phrase, you know, and actually we can still look one another in the eye, we can't see our mouths, but we can still see our eyes, you know, and to be able to look somebody in the eye, and it's not without fear or deference, it's without reason, for, you have, I have no reason to fear you, and I have no reason to have to defer to you, you know, because we are equal, and that's not saying that we're the same, right, it's not some kind of putting everybody in a blender and saying that everybody has to be the same, it's not Maoism, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very stringent idea. Um, that, that it's about human dignity, you know. To, to, to be dignified human beings, we need not to be subject to the arbitrary will of anybody else. We need to be able to look them in the eye without having to be afraid of them or having to feel that we have to kowtow to them. And that, that dignity, I think, is, is, is absolutely critical to a healthy political society. Um, and I, I think we still have the basis for it in this. I'm very optimistic about Ireland, you know, because I think what the pandemic has shown, you know, is, is our, our attention is drawn to the idiots, you know, high and low. But the vast majority of people have actually behaved extremely well, have been very dignified, have looked out for each other, you know, have, have cared for their own communities. And our problem, around I've always thought, is that we, we, we can't translate what we do at, at the intimate local levels up into, uh, into a government level, you know. Um, so if we have a, a kaleidoscopic shift, right, yeah. that what you're describing is a society where the virtues of citizenship and the rights and responsibilities are actually practiced, as we saw during the pandemic, yeah. which is a moment of great fear and loathing for everybody. People still went out and did shopping for their elderly neighbours. Uh, absolutely. The, the GAA got involved in all kinds of wonderful yeah. stuff. We have lots of social glue, yeah. which is essentially citizenship in Ireland. Why can that not translate, as you're just saying? Can the, is it because the structures have to change first? Yeah. Or can, can the, the actual capital that we have there force those changes? It doesn't seem to be doing so. That's the problem. Yeah. That we, we have a country full of largely good people yeah. who are not impressing on the people they elect sufficiently the need for the change that no doubt many of them would wish to have. Yeah, so it, obviously there's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interaction, isn't it, between political leadership, which I think we've, we've lacked you know, in, in, in a lot of ways, um, and structures. You know, the structures don't produce leaders or don't produce politicians who are, who are driven by vision, <laughs> to put it mildly. Um, the electoral structures, I don't think, feed into that. Uh, but then also, it's the other way around, and because leadership is, is, is minimal, people almost kind of write it off, you know, and say, we'll, we'll get on with doing the good stuff in our own community. Whatever. So I think that's the vicious circle. Um, a key thing here is, like, every society should build on its strengths, you know. 
And when we set up a state here, we're coming into the centenary, which would be a good time to think about the structures of the state. You know? Yes. We just aped the colonial master. We just did a sort of, like, what's the British model of doing democracy? Let's take that off the shelf. You know, that's what we'll do. Um, remember, many of the civil servants had actually been imperial civil servants, and yeah. the bulk of them, they just came straight. Now, this was a great advantage, because it meant you could set up a state very quickly, and it survived the civil war and all the rest of it, so sure. it, was, it was good. But also, it meant all those mentalities, those top-down mentalities, just kind of were chunk, you know, that, there it is. Um, and what we don't do is local democracy, you know. Um, and in fact, if anything, the state has become more and more and more centralized over time. A lot of small countries in Europe to whom we look, you know, for, for good reasons, because they're, they do some stuff better than we do, particularly Scandinavian countries, but also places like Holland or, you know, some small countries. Typically, half of public spending in those countries is, is, is local government spending, and half is central government. We're like 92% central government and 8% local government. It's a Stalinist you know, state in that sense. It's a Stalinist state in, in that sense, very, very top down, you know, yeah. and in a way the pandemic has, has reinforced that because we've had to have a kind of command and control thing, but I think we've also learned just, just how good the social capital is, how good people are at local level. Like just look at the GAA through the pandemic and you know how fabulous it, it's been. But also soccer clubs and the ICA and the IFA and you know we have a whole load of social capital there. Um, and again it's also about efficiency. People will make very good decisions when they can see at a local level what's the effect of this decision. You know why, why for example can we say, take the most serious thing that can happen in our society. The most serious thing that can happen is a murder. We trust 12 randomly selected citizens to make a judgment about what happened and who's guilty. And also who's not, you know, actually to be able to say, not be swayed maybe by dodgy evidence and to say actually, you know, to, 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 it's, it's the most serious minded thing you could possibly ask people to do and we take it for granted that they can do it but they can't decide on the budget for their local community in, in, in their local council. Community budgeting, for example, it works, it's been done loads of places. Um, you know, we, we have begun to develop some innovative models like the, uh, the Citizens' Convention, which I think has been fantastic. Um, you know, but we need a lot more of that. Of just, we're a small place, you know, we know each other, we have all these kind of connections. And when we sit in a room together, even randomly, and listen to each other and listen to expertise, we're capable of coming up with, with very good decisions. And then when people are involved in taking those decisions and not being dominated, um, they also take responsibility for them. You know, yeah. and, and they, they take and they ownership of them. them. And they defend them. And it was also, it just strikes me that, that when, if local democracy were stronger, if you had strong local politicians, people then have to look at them differently. Yeah. There would be, it's not just that we're sending so-and-so to the doyle, which is the classic phrase we use, yeah. and then you can denigrate them or praise them or whatever you want to do, but you don't feel any great sense of responsibility towards them unless you're part of a campaign. If this affects your local community, Absolutely. and this is a politician there, you have to look at them differently. Yeah. Politics is very bloody hard work. I wouldn't do it to save my soul. I mean, it's a really awful job. Um, and it does corrupt a lot of people, partly because it's so hard and people try to find ways around it. But if you, if you, devolution is the answer to that where you've got much more power. Absolutely, and it's double there. though, you know, I, I think you're absolutely right because it's, 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 it's both sides of it. So it doesn't just corrupt local decision making because yeah. we, don't, we don't give people power. What it means is then it, it, makes, it creates a vacuum. People want a local representative who has some power. So what they do, they, they make them national politicians. That's right. And they expect them to function as local politicians. That's right. Every TD spends at least two-thirds of their time on issues which are essentially either local government issues, yeah. which they should not be dealing with, or are issues over which they have absolutely no influence or control. Or departmental issues that they can't make a decision yeah. about it because um, people have rights. A political scientist years ago described the Irish system as imaginary patronage. <laughs> I think it's brilliant, you know. It's pretending, you know, finding out that somebody's going to be allocated a house which you've had nothing to do with yeah. and, and, and then, then taking a letter saying, I got you that house, you know. Uh, so it, it corrupts national politics as well. Give people the power, do this in a way which kind of links them into the environment which is saturated with all this whole, you know, idea of sustainability, of the kind of values that people want to see in their own societies. Um, but then also create national politics, you know, where, where, where we can expect our parliamentarians to be parliamentarians, to actually be thinking with some kind of vision about, you know, the things we're talking like housing, you know, what, what, what is it we need to do 
to get a national building agency up and running. Exactly. Um, why has it taken us so maybe long? Maybe read a few get... books. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. read your book. <laughs> okay, at, on that, because it is now uh, past seven, and uh, some of you may have other plans, but I'm, I'm going to allow, if everyone is agreeable, uh, about ten minutes for questions from yourselves and from our online um, viewers. Anyone here want to ask a question? He never says anything wrong, does he? Down there at the very back. Hi, Fenton. Hi. Um, I was just wondering, what are your views on wealth tax? Um, I'm in favour of it. <laughs> um, look, w w one of our problems is that we, we have a very narrow tax base. Um, so, we're a strange country because so much of our development has been done externally by bringing in multinational companies and we're, we're kind of locked into this kind of Faustian pact. And as it's happened over the recent years, we've, we've benefited enor enormously. I mean, you can't, you know, I'm, I'm one of the people who's most skeptical about our corporate tax rates and all the rest of it, but I mean, the amount of money we've been getting in, it's kept the country afloat, it, it, it allowed it to come out of recession. Uh, but what happens is, it seems to me that that's in the long term unsustainable, right? So um, we, we're going to have to become more European, you know, <laughs> uh, because of Brexit. We're, we're, we, we can't any longer be the little sort of, you know, street urchin dancing around these issues out there and getting away with it, you know. And the long term need for humanity is for corporations to be taxed properly, you know. It's, it's one of the key issues facing uh, all our societies. You can't sustain our democracies, our welfare states, and let the great generators of wealth off with paying minimal tax. You know, we can't keep doing this. But we're go so we should be thinking about a transition, right? If you turned it off tomorrow, the consequences would be disastrous. This is our moral dilemma, right? If, if we stopped getting the corporation tax, um, it would have devastating effects on, on ordinary people, right? on, on the whole economy, on, on the state's ability to do good things. Um, but we need to be engaged in a just transition, right? which is how do, we, how do we move towards a system of taxation which is broader, which is more sustainable, which is more just. And that does have to include wealth taxes, it has to include um, site value taxes on, on, on land, I mean the accumulation of profit out of land you know, for no good social purpose, yeah. pretty appalling. Um, uh, you know, so, so one of the things we urgently need, um, and I, I, you know, I have sympathy with the new government because it's come in with this pandemic, but, and I think actually funny enough, if you talk to IBEC, for example, the Employers' Confederation, they'll agree with you now. Yeah. You know, they'll say, we know this taxation stuff isn't, isn't sustainable, we need a commission on taxation, yeah. which just actually starts from scratch again and says, look, how, how much money does the state need, how, how do we fund it? And, it has to include things like property taxes and wealth taxes and, uh, you know, a whole range of taxes. It, it can't be about just piling more and more taxation onto, you know, a sort of relatively small number of people. And it is, because about 40% of people don't pay tax at all. And that is actually a citizenship issue, I would think. That even if you're, if you're earning too little to qualify to pay tax, take a cent off everyone so they're actually a taxpayer. So it becomes a stake in society because taxation is seen as a burden, uh, not as yeah. a privilege, which is what it should be. I, I, would, I would slightly disagree with you. In, I mean, I, I agree with you in, in, in the general point. Uh, yeah. I mean, actually, everybody pays tax because there's, yeah. there's indirect taxes. True. There is. And there's people don't know they're paying tax. tax. And actually, yeah. poor people pay a lot more indirect taxes as a proportion of their income True. than rich people do. Why? Because they spend all the money they have. You know, every time you go to the shop to buy a pint of milk, uh, pint juice, I'm that. giving my age away, your litre of milk, you're, yeah. paying, you're paying VAT, you know, and you're paying VAT all the time on everything. And so the poor actually, if you, if you, you know, reckon it out, this idea that, you know, they don't pay any tax is, is not true. But the problem is that they don't really know they're paying tax and no. it's not calculated and it's not, it's so, not so I, I completely agree with you that we have to think about everybody as, 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 yeah. as, as contributing. But we really do need um, a, a, a really serious commission on taxation. Which, which, which takes a long-term view of what is sustainable. You know, we've been getting huge windfalls from uh, corporation tax. The weird thing is, and maybe it's a, it's, a, it's a hopeful thing, right, which was Ireland fought tooth and nail against even minimal reform of global corporate taxation governance and then had to give in. Yeah. And when, once 
there was more governance, which they fought tooth and nail against. Ireland's been a huge beneficiary of it. Why? Because it's closed a lot of the really, really terrible tax havens, yeah. and it's moved it towards the more respectable tax haven, which is Ireland. So there's a huge onshoring of, of corporate profits and uh, corporate intellectual property um, you know, suddenly coming into Ireland, and that's producing these windfalls of, of corporations. But as you say, in the long term, not, not sustainable. sustainable. That's the issue. Do we have any online uh, questions? We don't want our online viewers to feel excluded. Uh, well, there's a couple of, couple of comments coming in and questions. Um, I know you've kind of touched on this, Fintan, but I suppose, what are the fundamental positives that we can take from the COVID crisis? Fundamental positives from the COVID crisis? Well, we've talked a lot about yeah. that. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would just go back to the thing about social capital. You know, uh, if you, I don't know if you remember, Bertie Ahern got obsessed with social capital and all that. There was a big Fianna Fáil thing during the Celtic Tiger, you know. I remember, and that yeah. it was all going. It was all, yeah. you know, social capital was, was being destroyed. Who was the guy who wrote the book that he invited uh, down I, to the I, Fianna Fáil gathering? Just, gathered, just got out of my, gone, my yeah, head, but he was yeah. addressing the Fianna Fáil or yeah. and everything else. The Harvard guy, uh, anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. Bowling alone. Anyway, um, but, but of course it was really a way of, it was a very, it was a very clever way of kind of, it's your fault. Mm. What's happening to the society is your fault because <laughs> you're losing social capital. It's not my fault because of my housing policies or yeah. because I'm, you know, creating a banking. It's a great excuse. But, boom. but, but uh, I, I think to be sort of um, romantic for a moment, the, the image that came into my head is, you know, sometimes when there were, you know, in Ireland where the, the morning light just, just hits a you know, piece of grass or something, and, you, and you, you get to see all these little filaments of all the, the webs, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's very beautiful, and it's just a momentary thing, and it's, just, it's illuminated, all these connections that you didn't know were there. And I think the pandemic has been a bit like that, you know. It's, it's, it has illuminated these webs of connection, both the positive ones that, that survived, the way in which people have been looking after each other, as you were saying, but also the negative, our need for it, you know. We, we desperately need each other. And I, I think we've been reminded of that. You know, the pain people have felt about not going to funerals, for example, you know, has, is existential. You know, it's actually kind of made us, as human beings, think, you know, we need this. We need to recognize each other's lives and mourn each other and also have fun together and do all these kind of other things, you know. And, and so I think the, the evidence that social capital is still incredibly strong in Ireland um, is, 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 for me, the great positive. And, and it's, it's the reason why I think if we, if we learn the right lessons from this, you know, we, we have such great things to build on. We do. I think we'll call a halt there. So I want to thank Finton absolutely profoundly for, we, we could have gone on for another three hours, as you can see. So thank you for your attention. Very grateful to you all for coming here and to our online viewers for supporting us uh, so much. Thank you so much for coming this evening and good night. Thank you for listening to First Thought. For more, visit the Talks page on Galway International Arts Festival's website, giaf.ie.